Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 657th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who wants us to renew our relationships with bugs. We're talking with Vicki Hurd about rebugging the planet. Vicki is the head of the Sustainable Farming Campaign for Sustain, the Alliance for Better Food and Farming, with over 100 nonprofit organizations. She runs an independent consultancy as well. Vicki has a master's in pest management and is a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society. As an experienced and award winning environmental campaigner, researcher, writer, and strategist, Working mainly in the food, farming, and environmental policy area, Vicki has worked on government policy for many years. Vicki is the author of Perfectly Safe to Eat, The Facts on Food, and her latest book is titled Rebugging the Planet, published by our friends at Chelsea Green. Her passion is insects and other invertebrates. Welcome to the show today, Vicki. Are you ready to rock bugs? Absolutely. Let's Excellent. get buggy. <laughs> Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I've always always been fascinated by the things that you see when you look down rather than up. You know, my friends were um, bird lovers, but I would look for the ants and I, I even kept ants when I was uh, a young child in an ice cream tub. And that that continued I did biology courses and I had a particularly good teacher it's often about the teacher and she right. got me a great summer job working with bees once which probably cemented my path somehow although you don't really ever choose it do you but I ended up doing first degree I looked at pesticides in the final year which was which was kind of horrible but also amazing to study and that led me to doing a pest management masters which you mentioned and that got me looking at the bugs in greenhouses and even looking at cockroaches which are amazing animals quite extraordinary and I, I got Ooh. a lot of respect for them no they're really? lovely they're lovely <laughs> they're very important detritivores they eat the mess that we don't want to eat and convert it into useful nutrients uh -huh. so I just got I got so into it but I ended up through some sort of chance working for Friends of the Earth, which is one of our largest environmental environmental justice organisations in, mm -hmm. in the UK. And you have Friends of the Earth in America as well. So 
they were great. And I've, I've learned all the skills of campaigning there and done that ever since. Nice. Mm. And so let's just talk about your master's degree, because I actually mm. took one whole semester of a class called IPM. Can you tell us what IPM is and tell us a little bit about your master's? Because I'm fascinated yes. about that. Yeah, no, it was amazing. I think I was pretty lucky to get to do it, actually, and to get the money, because we're talking about 1989, 88, uh-huh. 89. And I'd just come back from Ecuador, where I'd been to the rainforest, so I was even more bugged up, as you say, because mm-hmm. I saw some incredible animals there. But I ended up doing this course and learning all sorts of ways of controlling pests. And the, the actual course was Development of Pest Management Systems. So it was looking at all the tools. And you mentioned IPM, which is Integrated Pest Management, mm-hmm. which is li- literally means using any chemicals as a very last resort, if at all. Sure. You use natural systems, you use cultivation, you use different breeds, you use your brain and skills and nature to, to manage the pests. And it's really on the up now. It's really exciting how many farmers are, are starting to use this, partly because chemicals are very expensive and farmers are struggling against a harsh marketplace. But they also can see the benefits of protecting the predators of their prey or their disease carriers, etc. Right. So, so it was a really good course to, to get to know all the different routes. Yeah. Wow. And you were, you and I were in college about the same time. I went back to college in 1999 to get ah. my bachelor's and master's degree. Mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm. Learning late in life, yeah. And so let's talk about your book, Rebugging. What do you mean by rebugging? What's that? Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the title came to me, actually, partly because of there's been a huge renaissance or interest in rewilding. And oh, I yes. saw a book called, uh, yeah, it's really big here, but it's it's been done for, for many years in parts of Europe. And obviously America has great skill in protecting wild places and making them survive against the odds. But I saw a book called Rebirding, which is a great book by an author here about how birds play a critical role. And I thought, well, what about the bugs? <laughs> Let's talk about the bugs. And I sat on a train, got came up with the title in a way, just as a title for 50 tips to help the bugs. And I just wrote those on the train journey. And that sort of led me to thinking, well, I could make maybe make it a bit more. It's not my job. My job is the food and farming policy, but I love bugs. And I was quite interested in seeing if it could turn into something else. Well, I heard recently that most bugs are good bugs. Mm. Most bugs have a really important role to play in the system. The fact that we don't know they're good and we fear them or just dislike them, have a a visceral dislike is is something I want to change. We need a new relationship with bugs. And yes, that's got to include being careful. You know, if you're allergic to, to bee stings, you've got to be careful across the world, they can carry diseases. But there are good ways of controlling that that we know about. And what we need to do is not kill the good bugs, which are, as you say, in the majority in terms of, you know, they're very, very important for all sorts of ecosystems on which we all depend. Right. So it's, it's really critical to, for all of us to play our part in, in helping them to survive and thrive, not just survive. So tell me good things about bugs. Good things about bugs. Well, I did in the book I described, I had a very, very large chapter on this. They had to cut it down. There's so many ways. But obviously, everybody knows about pollination. There are an awful lot of bugs that pollinate, not just bees. They pollinate plants, allowing the plants to create the fruit or other crop products that we need for eating, um, uh-huh. or coffee and chocolates, those vital items in our diets. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but also fruit and veg, you know, they, they are really critical for many crops. And there's moths, spiders, wasps, bees, all, all loads and loads of invertebrates that do this. But they're also critical in 
for instance, moving seeds about. Some of them are seed dispersants, oh, and yeah. others are, yeah. They, and you might know about the way in which earthworms are critical for good soil creation. Mm-hmm. They're actually a sort of keystone species in the soil. But so are ants, so are springtails. I love, I love the name of the globular springtail. That's one of the things about invertebrates that's fascinating when you find out their names. But that's that's the cultural and the creative side, more to the essential side. They, they, you know, the way in which they draw nutrients into the soil, they allow water and air to get into the soil to allow the soil to to be an area rich for growing food and rich for the fungi that need are needed to grow the food as well. Because fungi are in, integral part of this whole system, yeah. and they've got a very strong relationship with bugs as well. So, they bugs also bring the the spores and the bacteria in, across soils and across whole landscapes in a way which we couldn't possibly replicate. So they're really, really important for soils. They're important for water treating, um, water treatment plants are using bugs like nematodes and rotifers, which are tiny little bugs, to filter the bad things inside the, inside the water, such as chemicals or unhelpful materials in the soil. They can break mm-hmm. it down to allow further decomposition. I mean, there's so many different ways I, I talk about in the book. It's quite hard to do it justice in a, in a small space of time. Right. But they really, we really wouldn't be able to sit on wooden seats or eat most of the food we eat or wear the clothes that we wear without the bugs. Wow. And so what can we do in our gardens to help? I mean, yeah, it's really it's a really great question. And I, I in the book, I've got lots of tips in there because it's quite clear from the evidence that gardens and urban spaces and green spaces and parks provide a really critical refuge for invertebrates. And that's clear ever more now as our be it farmed environments are often cleared of, of all the bugs in order, you know, crazily in order to grow food ever more cheaply. Mm-hmm. And we've got to do a lot in terms of what we do in the farming. But in your garden, you can provide a refuge and a, a corridor for bugs to move through and meet other bugs to mate and to be able to escape predators, and things like that. So providing a, a corridor and a refuge as well as food and places to nest. Your gardens are critical, critical places. And that's that's becoming ever clearer from the evidence that they, they're a really important part of the system. So if we can make our gardens as bug-friendly as we can, and that the key word really is diversity. And another word for it would be mess. You know, if you make your garden messier. <laughs> right? and, yes. and a lot of, yeah, that's the key, messiness. And, and lots and lots of different things in it is, is key. You are providing an essential service to the eco system warriors that are bugs it's you know it, it, there's nothing you can't do if, even if you've just got a few pots on your windowsill if you live in a flat you could be providing critical space for a, a pollinator for instance to rest and get some food as it goes on to another place yeah anything you can do to support green spaces being more diverse messy flower filled well, then yeah. that's a good thing yeah critical. a few months ago i was so my the front room of our house uh mm. faces east and it looks out on our front yard. And a few mm. months ago, I was doing yoga in the front room and the front window was open. The curtains were open. And I looked out and there were carrots going to seed, broccoli going to seed, lettuce going to seed. And I looked at the amount of flying insects yeah. Yeah. that were... They love the, yeah, they love the vegetable flowers. Yeah, yeah there Amazing. were yeah. hundreds and hundreds mm. of them in this small garden bed. And it, yeah. it's just, it occurred to me like, wow. 
look the species richness you can get in a garden is yes. extraordinary it's not just it's not just volume it's it's diversity of, of of bugs is incredible and by providing that by allowing those crops to go to flower you're providing them with uh, food and shelter as well some some plants are really important for bugs to provide to provide them with shelter yeah. and places to lay their eggs you know old oh, yes. lumps of wood you know if you have old lumps of wood in your garden you, you could be actually helping a stag beetle and stag beetle to me are, are one of the most gorgeous creatures on the planet the male is very large very cumbersome completely harmless but it looks like a, a fierce dinosaur in uh -huh. small scale but if you've got logs they love to lay their eggs in rotten logs and they take many years to grow into huge maggots which then emerge as the very large adults and what I want people to do is is to not fear these things yeah. to actually encourage them in well, and so I just looked up stag beetle real quickly right. and they do look dinosauric and prehistoric don't they they do we have a, a campaign every year to stop people treading on them People tread on them because they fear them. And it's an awful thing because they're quite rare in the UK where I live. Mm. So we have every year when they're due to come out, the, the time of year, the social media I have is filled with save wow. the stag beetle, don't tread on them, put them somewhere safe if you find them in a weird place. And I once found a male stag beetle had hit a glass of a shop where I was walking down the street and it uh -huh. hit the shop and it was on the ground upside down. I lifted it up, put it on a little piece of paper and took it to a park. Everybody can do that. And they are completely harmless. Right. And they're beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And, that, you know, that happens occasionally. So, you know, with the, what I do, with the work that I do in the world, I get a lot of emails and calls. Oh, my gosh, I have this in my yard or I have mushrooms in my, my yard or I have this particular bug in my yard or I have bugs in my yard. How do I kill them? And what I really try and do is shift people's perspective, especially yeah with stag beetles and you know some of the other bugs that look like they're really vicious they're right yeah. but they mostly aren't they mostly are spiders must come up every now and then as well spiders that people really i mean there is almost a visceral fear yep. of spiders which would be great if people could not pass on to their children some people naturally are i think that they have a phobia and that's something to be obviously very aware of but don't transfer that phobia to other people. That's what I would say. Because every, spiders are amazingly important as well, not least in terms of pest control. Yeah. In your house, they will eat tons and tons of flies that you don't want in your house. Yep. So, And even fleas, they will eat fleas. So there's an awful lot of good that these bugs, even though they look frightening, they won't really touch you. You're far more of a threat to them than they are to you. Right. So look after them. Absolutely look after them. So let's talk about your book for a little while. Why did you write it now? Well, the evidence has got ever stronger. You might have seen the headlines, the insect again. We've had that all over the, in the UK, in the media. Some new evidence showing that some insect species and numbers are crashing. Now, there's some controversy about how bad it is. Mm -hmm. And we, all, we do know that um, invertebrates being small and very... Um, well adapted to adapt to new places if they, if they need to. Some are good at adapting anyway. They can create new colonies very quickly. And so there is some question marks over the evidence, but it is very clear that there is a crisis in our invertebrate world and particularly some of the insects. And that became you know, very loud over the last couple of years. So I decided to look into it and I thought, well, if I can help people think about their attitude to bugs, 
and think about what they do in their lives, in their gardens, what they buy, the food, etc. Then that might be a contribution to supporting the bugs in urban areas and also rural areas. There's mm-hmm. bits in the book about farming as well. And we know that the way in which we build, the way in which we farm is really harmful for invertebrates. And, and in some places, all you get is those general, generalists like cockroaches and flies that can be very adaptive, um, adaptive to what right. food is around. They don't need a specific food item. So those generalists, we don't want to just be surrounded by generalists. We want all of them. We need that diversity of, of bugs. Wow. And there's even an hour and 41 minute movie on YouTube called Insectageddon. Yes, it's a common phrase in in the UK, and wow. um, it's I mean it's useful because it's really raised awareness of pe- uh, with people of, for instance, their use of insecticides in the garden, yep. getting them to cut cut those back or just eliminate them and do things in a different way, cultivate in a different way. Because we know with permaculture you can do things differently. The more variety you have, the more likely that the pests aren't going to dominate. We know that, and but people have you know very obvious or very vulnerable gardens and perfect lawns which you know I say in my book we should be having no mow may and that's been a big campaign in the UK so you don't mow you allow seeds to fall from weeds and allow a few weeds to come through a taller grasses all those things provide food and shelter and mating places for the bugs and also is good for your soil so having not such perfect lawns is a good thing as well oh my god Mm. don't let Mm. don't let weeds grow in your yard <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do too. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What harm are they doing, really? Right. I mean, if you just reconfigure your brain to think that's not messy, that's a beautiful ragwort. Wow. And there's a bug on it. Oh, even more. Wow. Do yeah. that, and you'll be fine. So it's about your attitude and and what you can learn from them. I do talk about that in the book as well. What we can learn from insects, which was really fun chapter to write. Um, Tell me. It got cut. It got cut because I got a bit carried away <laughs> about all the things that we need in our lives, what we can learn for, from insects to, to do it better. Mm-hmm. I suppose one of the, the best things is how to work with each other. You know, and we have politicians, we have oh, yes. people, we have movements, you know, whereas if you look at the termites or ants' nests, so these hyper social species that create huge colonies that can speak to each other and can communicate in all sorts of ways, not just one way of communicating, they have loads of ways of communicating, and they all know their place. And they work with each other so well. Obviously, it's very different. We're humans. We have lots of complications. But we do need to work together better and communicate better. Those lessons we can learn, I think. Yeah, amen to that. Mm. And what does a world without bugs look like? Well, I did write a, a very small chapter at the beginning of the book trying to do that, trying to do a sort of counterfactual thinking about what would it look like. And it would. it was quite difficult to do because... In so many ways, we couldn't survive without the bugs. Mm-hmm. It would be very difficult to get the amount of food we need if we didn't have soil created by the bugs with their chewing and their mashing and their chomping and everything and all the ways in which they support the soil development. So we'd have to produce food in a different way. We would probably not be able to have the kind of cotton clothing we have and the timber plants that we uh, plants that produce timber that we sit on and that we create our houses because they need the bugs. In many ways, trees are a critical relationship with bugs and other parts of the ecosystem. It would also, there'd be a huge loss of richness. You know, how many birds would there be or bats if we Mm. didn't have bugs? That would crash. And so it would be a a lot quieter, potentially a lot less beautiful because those pollinated plants and flowers and shrubs, 
etc etc all need the bugs for pollination so you'd end up with something which both emotionally and physically would be quite hard to survive i think and there's many many ways many other ways in which they without them we'd be in a, a very difficult situation i think there'd be mass starvation yeah and do you have a favorite bug i find the idea of a favorite bug quite difficult but there's always one that comes to my mind which is the it's called the cockchafer or the maybug and it's a large beetle bit furry around the edges and it has the most exquisite antennae the things on the top of their heads which the, through which they listen and find out where their feed or their mate is and it's just a beautiful beautiful large beetle that clum clumsily moves around in may and june time um, but it has actually got a bad history to it in fact and i do recount this in the book in france because the maybug does a lot of crop damage when it's allowed to. It can do a lot of crop damage. It was actually taken to court in a in a Paris court in the 1700s. Oh, it's wow. extraordinary to take a to take an insect to court, and they were found guilty and banished henceforth from wow. this region. Crazy but true, apparently. And yeah, I think the cockchafer is just a beautiful animal. So that, but I do, I have also got a giraffe necked weevil on my shoulder as a tattoo. Because for me, the giraffe neck weevil, which only exists in Madagascar, is a unique expression of the diversity of insects, insects in particular. I, do, yeah. I like all invertebrates, but it's such a stunning little animal. So extraordinary. And you, So you've mentioned a couple of times the insects and other invertebrates. Mm -hmm. Have you ever studied and done anything with uh, water invertebrates? I haven't actually, no. My studies were on cockroaches. My main studies were on cockroaches and glasshouse pests. Wow. Um, so I haven't actually done water invertebrates, but they are numerous. But it, I did actually find out something interesting, that there's no insects apart from one in oceans. There's obviously a lot of invertebrates in the oceans. You've got your crabs and your shrimps and all those critical part of the marine ecosystem mm -hmm. and, and critical in, in all sorts of ways not least making sure we can still fish, but also they're important for cycling of nutrients and carbon dioxide even, you know, mm. we're talking about climate change, they're important in that system. But there's no, there's only one insect and that's called the water strider. And it strides over the water and catches animals in its in its grasp. So I thought that was rather wonderful. Interesting. But, yeah, but our, our critical invertebrates in water systems, freshwater systems, absolutely key to protect those and they're harmed by all sorts of chemicals and abstraction yeah so in invertebrates in water aren't that look like insects aren't called insects no what i meant was in the oceans i mean obviously you've got uh, insects in in freshwater systems the caddis fly and mayflies all, many insects lay their eggs like dragonflies exactly. they lay their eggs in 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 water systems ah, but those are freshwater in seawater you've got the water strider and That's it's it. uh, extraordinary. And, it, it, you know, why? I don't know. But other other bugs have colonized the system, the ocean system and the saltwater system. Maybe salt is a particular problem for the way in which insects, the six-legged bugs, can survive. It can't survive in the seawater, but obviously they're critical in, in water systems, freshwater systems. So there, I'm sure, have been some moments along the way that just knocked your socks off, uh, that blew you away and... and I, I see a note here, something about bees and the way they communicate. Yes, I I did, luckily, when I was a teenager, get a job 
investigating some of the habits of honeybees coming in and out of their hives, what they were going to do, whether they were going to go for pollen and uh, nectar mm -hmm. in nearby flowers, or if they were there to guard the beehive and have a, a guarding right. um, role or task. So I would sit for days on end counting the bees coming in and out. And one day, for some reason, one bee really took against me and I could hear immediately when it started going around my head and around my head and around my head and its buzz was completely different from the buzz that I got very used to sitting there day in day out which was fairly ordinary bee buzz so this bee was buzzing in a completely different way and then it landed on my face and was buzzing even more fiercely walking all around my face and eventually it got to my nostril and at that point I couldn't take it anymore I had to flick it off and um, it did sting me. But what I remembered was the communication it was making to me. It was, it was saying, you big, huge monster next to our nest, you're a risk, go away. It, it was telling me that. I didn't, wow. so I got stung, you know, and I, I never forgot that. And I loved that job. It was incredibly rewarding, learning about all the communication tools that bees and um, honeybees use in a hive. Right. Pheromones, waggle dance. They dance to tell you where the uh, best nectar sources are. And they've got all sorts of different dances, depending on the weather and depending on where the sources of nectar are. They're brilliant. So I know I know they communicate, but that bee was communicating with me directly. <laughs> right? And I and I felt blessed, except yeah. I have still I have still got the scar on my lip. <laughs> but wow. It was wow. worth it. So your book, Rebugging the Planet. The Remarkable Things That Insects and Other Invertebrates Do and Why We Need to Love Them More. Love that. And there is, there's a couple of other places that we need to go before we transition and not just in the garden. Tell me about that. Absolutely. What you do in your garden and, and your house is, is critical. And I want everybody to do those things. But you can also really support the bugs by getting involved in local campaigns, local parks and initiatives, but also in what you buy your food you buy, if you can go food with a minimum pesticides, organic, or grow your own, obviously that's fantastic without chemicals. And what clothes you buy, you know, clothes are a critical part of the problem because we're all buying more artificial fibers, which creates microfibers, which are creating huge problems mm. in freshwater systems for, for the bugs because they eat the plastic instead of what they're supposed to eat. And as we know, their, their gut is where a lot of good things happen because they break up leaves and things and, and release nutrients. So it's all those things, but it's also how you interact with the community and with your politicians. Choose politicians that love bugs and understand what they need to do. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. Well, one of the failures I, I see most in my campaigning life is with a bill that I tried to, it's a piece of legislation I tried to get passed in government in the late uh, noughties, about 2010. And I relied on some politicians who let me down at a critical point in time when a vote happened. Mm -hmm. And from that, I learned, A, don't put all your eggs in one basket and have a campaign that covers several different tools, several different theories of change, but also don't rely on politicians, which we know we can't. <laughs> and so that's something right. I sort of already knew, but it, it, it did hurt at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I won't even go there. I hear you. <laughs> so what do you consider your biggest success? My biggest success? Well, apart from managing to finish this book in lockdown, it's probably actually some legislation which I did get through. I got a 
big uh, act through with many other people working with partnership. I work in partnership all the time to get the supermarkets, our big box retailers, to play fair with farmers. And that was critical to allow farmers to do what they need to do on, on their farm. And I also had some successes with the Agriculture Act, which has just been passed. So have had some success with legislation, which is important because voluntary action by supermarkets and others is never going to really do what we need. It needs to be set in law. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I am a work from the bottom up guy and I so admire y'all that work from the top down to make it because that is so, so important. We have to change. We have to change those things. Yes. Regulation is, is key, but I also am at bottom up as well. I totally believe we need both. And it's the movement that sometimes almost always is what gets change happening at the top as well. Yeah. If you've got a big enough movement shouting loudest, then you'll get the change. I think a lot of people are more interested in bugs now, more caring about them. I, I think there's a lot, there's a movement growing yeah. that could get the right legislation in to protect them better. One, a very curious mm -hmm. thing that happened this year is that in the United States, glyphosate Roundup has been <laughs> banned. Yeah, it's amazing. It from the market yeah. for home use. Now that's not bug related, mm -hmm. but I'm sure it affects mm -hmm. bugs. Oh, it does because it affects their feed plants. It's critical. Yeah. We know that you know that your monarch butterfly migration is is affected by the loss of milkweed, and that's a that's lost through herbicide. So it's an amazing action that you've done in the US. And what it means is that farmers will have to change their system. Hopefully, they won't just choose another chemical, and right. they won't be able to. They need to change the systems to get it to work better and have different plants, you know, so they can actually have a a working agro ecosystem. Amen to that. What drives you? Apart from the bugs and the nature, which I, I love and always have, and the evidence that it's being harmed, that is my big driver. But I also, going back to what you said about being bottom up, it's the people I come across who are doing amazing, either campaigning or practical actions, growing in an in a incredibly concrete-filled area, growing some wonderful garden or protecting a particular ecosystem they make me cry when i come across these right. wonderful local local groups yeah we, for years i went to a local groups conference with friends of the earth and i always cried because listening to these amazing people doing stuff voluntarily and getting to grips with some of the most arcane ridiculous laws at a local level that could protect the environment and they were brilliant and wonderful people i was getting paid i was getting a salary they weren't so that made, made me really emotional so i say yeah Wow. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Can I have two? Can I have fiction and nonfiction? Please go. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'd have to say Flight Behavior by Barbara Kingsolver is possibly one of my favorite fictional novels that covers the environment, but it's a wonderful book in itself. She writes like a dream. So Flight Behavior by Barbara Kingsolver. But I've just read a wonderful book by a man called Merlin Sheldrake called Entangled Lives. And it's all about how fungi are actually totally oh. critical to our very existence Yes. in the first place. You know, they, they were there before anything else, practically. And it's a wonderfully written book. And I, I was just in, very inspired by it. As a biologist, it was very interesting, but I think it would work for anybody who's vaguely interested in how a garden works. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of information mm -hmm over the past three or four years that's come out about fungi and yeah yeah and you've got the radical the radical fungi fungi folk radical um, mycologists which i think we need radical entomologists 
now, but I love the idea yes. of radical. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take sort it. Of doing it, doing it all, not letting any barriers stop you protecting these or growing them and growing unusual varieties, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah. yeah, let's all get radical. There you go. I'm in. <laughs> what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I think your listeners are probably all very good at what they do in terms of protecting bugs. So it's, I would ask them to spread the word and spread visuals as well. I find having on my smartphone now, having pictures of bugs in my garden, I found amazing amount of bugs, just talking to them, people about it, talk to family, workplace and your council, your local authority about what they're doing to protect the bugs in the local area. So basically shouting about rebugging and rebugging your very community. That would be what I would ask them to do because they're already, already probably doing quite a lot in their own home. Nice. So the book is Rebugging the Planet, The Remarkable Things That Insects and Other Invertebrates Do and Why We Need to Love Them More. Thank you, Vicki, for joining us here today. It was my pleasure. Really great to meet you. Oh, right back at you. You know, I love doing this podcast. We have over 650 episodes of this podcast because I get to connect with people like you doing incredible work. So thank you for that. Thank you. So how can I, how can we find you? Well, I have set up a website called www.rebuggingtheplanet.org. So rebugging is all one word. Mm -hmm. And I've put some tips and why I wrote the book and some of my photographs. So you can find me there. And you can find my book in Chelsea Green Publications and in bookshops everywhere I open. There you go. Absolutely. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash rebugging. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.